host Chandler Malone, and welcome to the latest episode of Be Atento, helpful tips and stories from some of today's most successful entrepreneurs and investors. Be Atento is brought to you by Atento Capital, a Tulsa-based venture fund focused on driving returns through early-stage venture investment and local economic development and job creation. Atento is Spanish for helpful, careful, thoughtful, conscientious, and polite, as we seek to embody these characteristics to all of our stakeholders. Today, we are excited to welcome Mercedes Bent, General Partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners, to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking some time uh, to join us on the podcast today. We're, we're really looking forward to diving deeper with you. Would love to just hear how things have been going for you during these COVID times and how it's been affecting you and uh, the rest of the Lightspeed team as well. Yeah, I mean, personally, I have been feeling very fortunate and lucky to be not terribly affected directly. And I think this is a time where you notice your blessings and privilege more than ever. So I'm feeling, you know, grateful for that. And while some members of my family have been affected, everyone will pull through. And at work, we've been light speed spending even more time than ever with our portfolio companies. I mean, for most of March, we were kind of just heads down triaging on board calls and and every single day. Now things at the end of April, I guess actually this is technically the beginning of May, have really started to feel like they're getting back to normal. So um, so going back to doing a lot more sourcing now. Yeah, I, I feel like with everyone that I've talked to in the venture space, that's been kind of a common theme is spending a lot of time with portfolio companies trying to support during these during these crazy times. But enough about COVID, really want to kind of jump into things and, and talk a little bit more about you and some of your areas of expertise. So would love to just you know hear your story and, and your background a little bit more to provide some context for our listeners. Yeah, so I always think about like, man, how did I end up in venture? It's such a funny place to be. And I I mean, when I think back to the earliest days, I actually come from a family of entrepreneurs. My dad is a inventor and tinker and hobbyist and all things tech. And he and my mom worked on several companies together on my dad would have inventions for ranging from radio frequency identification chips, RFID to working on a new prototype of a bike where instead of bicycling sitting up, you would be face down and kind of pedaling with your feet behind you. So this was always kind of the currency of the household. Everyone was always just talking about ideas and what we were going to build next. And so that really entrepreneurial grounding, and now that I look back on it, a kind of strange upbringing led to me being really excited about working in startups. And at the beginning of my career, I actually worked in finance. I worked for the Federal Reserve during the last recession and then went to Goldman and then got into startups after that. Worked at General Assembly for several years during kind of their their scaling phase, so from Series A until right up before they sold. And then went to run revenue at a virtual reality startup. And I really think that now that I'm in venture, it's kind of the mesh of those two prior experiences, the time in finance and the operating experience at startups. So just kind of looking at your background, there's been a central motif of education from your time at General Assembly, also to your educational background and your master's at Stanford. And so would love to just kind of understand where this passion for education comes from for you. Yeah, there's, it's, it's kind of, there's two angles and two components to it. One is kind of the personal, once again, personal family history. And the other angle is kind of the, the personal experience working 
at General Assembly and seeing firsthand the power of EdTech. And then on the family history side, everyone has a family story in education because we all go through it. But specifically, my mom also was a teacher at a community college for much of my time growing up. And my grandparents also taught at a HBCU, a historically black college and university. And so kind of that deep sense of we always need to be teaching and giving back has been in the family for a while. And then when I found myself at General Assembly in the mid-2010s, I really honestly went there first because I thought it was such a cool hub of the startup scene in New York City. And the longer and longer I stayed there, I just realized how much we were impacting lives. There was a student, I'll never forget, named Matt, who we found out was actually sleeping in the school and at times or not being able to kind of complete his homework on the weekends because he was doing side jobs. And we realized that he kind of didn't have all of the resources that he needed to complete the program, namely that he was kind of homeless and was working all the time. He was outside of school because he needed money to, to pay for life. And so we did some things, worked some stuff out so that he could stay in the program and become a TA because he was so exceptional. And he ended up TAing a lot of our classes, making some income that way and graduating, going on to being a software engineer. And stories like that just are, it's kind of like, I, I can't even express how much those type of stories give me passion for the power of education. But really, it's it's when I think about folks like Matt is the reason I spend so much time in education today. That's extremely powerful. And so kind of shifting to the changes in education in the face of this current you know, COVID situation, do you see that there are going to be any huge shifts in the higher education space with how things are done in the face of uh, COVID? I do. I think we're going to see a lot of changes coming in the next two years or so. I, I say two years because the school system is just going to be getting going again in the fall. I mean, some of the biggest things I think that are going to happen. First, I think there's going to be a lot of pricing pressure on colleges because there will need to be some, we don't know what the world is going to look like in the fall of this year, but there we do know that people will need to be prepared for a world where it's possibly all instruction is all remote. And so while the experience that a lot of people have been getting this spring is that, wow, this remote instruction is not nearly worth the you know, same amount as what I think I was going to school for. And so, and I know already tons of people have asked for tuition to be lowered. Some schools like SNHU, Southern New Hampshire University have already decided to lower it proactively. And so I think there's going to be a lot of pricing pressure on schools and that's going to lead to a lot of schools closing. People have talked about the crisis in higher education for years and the number of schools that may close. Ernst & Young did a report back in 2016 identifying 800 schools that were at risk. And these are schools where typically a very high percentage of their revenue comes from tuition. State funding has declined for them over the years. They're small schools that are in typically more rural areas. And I think when I read the reports and surveys being done about students who say there's something like 10% of students are thinking they're going to take time off in the fall because this of the uncertainty of what the experience will 
will be like. But even more important than that is north of 40% of students are rethinking where they go to school. They're going to be shifting to schools that are natively online, that are part-time. And so I think all of that will really put a lot of pressure on these schools. I don't know how many will close, but I, I think that's a big reality. Yeah, that's very real and, and, and very kind of scary to, to process. With more schools closing and potentially fewer students going back to school, what type of alternative options do you think that young people will turn to? I think we'll see people. So there's another factor in terms of what people will turn to, because we're, it's also not just the students who are reconsidering that where they're all good for college, but also the people who've been laid off as of, I forget the numbers from this past week, but as of two weeks ago, we were up to 26 million people unemployed in the crisis. And that's just a monumental number of people that need to get back to work. And many of them are going to need to or want to retrain and reskill so that they have more options where they go. I think we're going to see a lot of labor shifts into areas that are doing well right now, which includes online education, online healthcare. I think the healthcare space in general would be a very attractive space down the line because people realize how much of a need we have for it. And the shortage of nurses has been the biggest gap in the job area for for a number of years now. So I think there'll be people that are returning to, in addition to kind of more of the online, natively online colleges like Western Governors University and Southern New Hampshire University, but also there'll be people going looking for alternative education programs that are not degree or credit bearing the coding boot camps were very popular the last generation i think there'll be another generation of maybe even healthcare boot camps where people are looking for rn roles or even more allied care healthcare roles below those medical assistants that they'll be able to go through short programs and kind of find their their job yeah, no, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. We're talking about higher education now, but COVID's having you know a huge impact in elementary, middle, and high school education as well. Would love to hear any thoughts that you have surrounding how that's going to impact things for younger students and parents as well. Yeah, I mean, I think this crisis has definitely shown everyone the value of K through 12 teachers, especially at the elementary and the early childhood levels, is that they're doing a lot more than just teaching. There's a whole child care component. And I know parents are at their wits end with how do you work from home if they're able to, or if they're a central worker and they need to go to work, how are you supposed to ensure that your child is still learning and going through their classes? They need a lot of management in addition to just teaching. So I think people are, there's going to be a lot of pressure to go back to school being open in the fall as soon as possible for K through 12 and for preschool. I mean, even over this summer, I think there'll be a couple of things that we see. I think that we're going to see on the early childhood education side, I think we're going to actually see more calls for child care regulation reform. So things like universal child care, child care tax credits. I think that People have realized what an essential service it is, and already we knew in this country that there were not enough people and the pricing was too onerous for many, but I think it's really shown we need it. So I do think there will be more calls there for that. And in K-12, I think that a couple of things are going to happen. I mean, on the one hand, there are going to be a number of parents who are fearful, rightfully so, of sending their kids back to school in the fall. 
And I do think we'll actually see an increase in the number of uh, people being homeschooled. Right now, about uh, about 3% of the U.S. homeschools their children, but surveys indicate that as many as 10% of parents would like to if they had options and if they kind of knew how to do it. This crisis has given parents tons of options. I mean, if you look at the ed tech companies that serve K through 12 content, they've been exploding three, four, five, ten 10 times the number of users as they normally have. So parents have now been exposed to these companies and it's a real, it's realistic that they could actually put their kids through it. So I think homeschooling population will actually double. In addition to that, I think now that parents have seen what their child does at school all day, I think kids, parents will be a lot more engaged in their children's education. And there are some ed tech companies that, you know, stand to benefit from that. One of the things that we've kind of seen in certain cities, like, for example, Washington, D.C., K-12, a school district has decided to um, basically end the school year early due to, you know, lack of resources at, at home for students. And so do you think that this this kind of time period is going to you know, exacerbate education inequality across socioeconomic demographics? And then as a follow-up question, do you think that there are ways to mitigate that either policy-wise or within the private sector? Yeah, I mean, it it's, it's already happening. And it, that's the saddest elements of what's happening with coronavirus is just that inequality has been put on show, right? In our in our face. It's it's very obvious that existing inequalities are being exasperated. And as everyone knows, schools provide a lot more services than just teaching, as we were talking about. I mean, many students rely on public school for meals and device and internet access and a safe space to be a kid. And there's so many of these elements that are not happening right now. I've seen reports in some areas that absenteeism is up to 25, 30% of school districts. And that there's, I think I was reading in the Los Angeles United uh, School District system, something like 13% of students, primarily almost all of them from lower income households, they haven't even heard of, heard from them since the coronavirus started back in you know the beginning of March. So this is a lot of people that are out of school And we're going to need a way to get them back up to speed or else we're going to have a whole generation of students. You know, if you think about 25, 30 percent of students in K through 12 that are essentially flunking a year, that would be a huge amount of students to flunk. So it's definitely exasperated inequality and we, we really do need solutions. I've been talking with some leaders in K through 12, people running school districts and looking to kind of understand what they're thinking. What I gleaned from them is there's kind of two approaches and are two or three. A lot of governors and state leaders have been advocating for lengthening the school year. So drawing instead of ending in May or June, drawing it out or on the flip side of that, starting the next school year earlier rather than starting in August, starting in late July. I think that is one possibility, and probably some districts will choose to do that, but that puts even more pressure on teachers who are already super overworked during this time and need time to prepare. And so I think that will be an unpopular option with a lot of teacher unions. Instead, the other uh, plan that I've heard that would be really interesting and hasn't been implemented greatly in K-12 through as far as I'm aware 
but is a move to competency-based education, meaning that you can test students for where they should be at. And rather than only being able to pass them based on whether they were present in school and whether they the, the butt seat hours, quote unquote, you could test them and see if they're able to move up. That won't solve everyone's issue, but I do think that will allow for some children to be to continue on in a path without being too disrupted. Awesome. Really appreciate that. And so we've kind of covered some of just the shifts that we're seeing in the retraining, the higher ed, and the K-12 space. Do you think that there are a few areas of opportunity for entrepreneurs to really come in and make a big impact? And you know, if so, what, what do you think some of those opportunities might look like? In retraining and reskilling, I definitely think some of the key areas, uh, opportunity areas are going to be around, as we talked about, healthcare and especially allied healthcare roles. We have an aging population. A lot of nurses are the older generation baby boomers. And so the shortage that's already been there is going to increase even more. Millions and millions of nurses in our country. And, and I think the shortage is still around a million or more. So we, I definitely think that training for those will be a, a huge role. And then we're also seeing things like with some of the online grocery and delivery companies, their Instacart and Amazon are hiring tons of workers. So I think that might be a shorter term solution, but in terms of retraining and reskilling, I think healthcare, technology, sales uh, roles, when you look at kind of the top 10 roles with the greatest shortage in them, the non-technical roles tend to be in healthcare and technical sales. So I think those will be great places for people to go. And do you, do you see kind of any opportunities within the higher ed or K-12 space uh, at all? For reskilling and retraining? Just for, well, yeah, reskilling and retraining and just even for entrepreneurs to, you know, kind of come in and innovate and solve some of these problems that, you know, we're seeing in the face of COVID and just what our new world is going to look like in general. Oh, yeah. I mean, for opportunities for entrepreneurs, I mean, I think there's going to be a ton. I think in K-12, there's going to be tons of opportunities to create new learning and new teaching platforms. We've relied on the LMS, the learning management system like Blackboard or Canvas for years, but those were not really built to be true teaching platforms and teaching tools. So I do think someone will create something that's kind of quote unquote, beyond the LMS with developer API integrations and embedded exercising and grading and feedback functionality, the ability for a teacher to jump in and go into breakout groups and multimedia formats. I think there, there really is an opportunity there. And so I hope someone will build something like that. And then I also think in terms of parent engagement and, and continuing to inform them about what's going on in the classroom, there's some startups doing this already, but I think that's going to be a promising area And then I think more so people are going to realize that all of their, if they have the means, all of their education doesn't need to come from the school itself. And I think supplemental education will also continue to see a lift, probably not as high as what we've seen in the current times, but I do think that supplemental programs would, are going to continue to succeed. I think on the higher education side, There's going to be opportunities also around startups partnering with colleges and employers to create co-branded degrees with employers. I mean, imagine if you went to the CVS University for pharmacy bachelor's degree, or you went to Snapchat University for, for a marketing degree. I think 
those have been talked about by a while for a while. And I see more and more so that employers and universities are open to these type of partnerships that because they can lead to potentially greater outcomes. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in that space too. To kind of move away from the education space and talk, you know, a little bit more about your background, would really love to hear your thought on the mixed reality space. Widespread adoption, you know, has definitely taken longer than, you know, everyone initially expected and would love to hear why you think that is and what catalysts you think may drive accelerated adoption in the future. Yeah, I started working in the XR space in 2016 And I was so gung-ho about the space at the time. I definitely think it's been in the trough of disillusionment for quite a while now. I mean, the hardware is not where it needs to be yet. I think we're all envisioning something a little bit more like the Matrix or Ready Player One. And it's really, unfortunately, still kind of uncomfortable and clunky experience for a lot of people. The While the VR experiences I see are great, there is... There are really siloed activities. The headsets make people a small percentage of them, but a small amount still a bit dizzy and not feeling well. For me personally, a lot of the VR headsets hurt my head and just feels like my head is being crushed somehow. (laughs) And so I think there are just a lot of hardware issues that we haven't overcome yet. So until there is really a natural, almost sunglasses-like fit for AR, VR, that is at a price point that is in the low hundreds of dollars, but yet has the computing ability and power of what the high-end stuff is able to do today, which that's just all about when is, how is the pricing power of technology coming down over time. And I don't know what when that time frame is going to be, but I think until that happens, consumer VR for sure is going to be slower growing Where I do see some opportunity today is in enterprise VR, AR, and there's companies like Upskill um, or Striver that are using AR and VR to help train employees, whether that's for a manufacturing factory job where you're looking to follow some set of directions and it helps you complete the task faster for new people who are newer to the job, or whether that's going down an aisle, the classic Shriver and Walmart example, walking down an aisle in a grocery store and being able to quickly identify what is out of place for a new person who's managing that store. So those use cases are already quite successful. And so I think for the next few years until the, that consumer use case is ready, that's going to be the big success in, v, in VR AR. And so shifting over to more, I guess, of the venture side and just looking at how you're identifying deals and companies that are attractive, you know, for investment, would love to hear what factors uh, you think are most important. The first deal being in kind of my target range is the most important thing. I typically start investing at the Series A. So looking for something on the consumer side where the metrics kind of match a Series A. Same thing on the enterprise side. And that really varies from category to category what exactly we're looking for. But on the consumer side, if it's more of a transaction-based revenue, looking for hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue per month and ideally higher repeat rates. So those are you know just some of the, there's kind of the quantitative metrics of what we look for and things that show high repeat, low retention, low, or sorry, high retention, low churn 
are businesses we always get super excited about. From a product standpoint, we're looking for folks that have found some that have some insight and really understand their customer, their consumer really, really well to the point that they can really, the product is designed in a way that it creates such a unique and magical experience for the consumer. We're always looking for that and we see really exciting solutions all the time. And then there's an element of kind of what we look for in the founder as well. I have this thing I kind of call founder product fit or founder business fit in that there's the way you've always heard kind of product market fit. There's a, I think of a similarity with founders where we're looking for, I want to say this is the person that had to have started this business and there's no other person that it would have made sense for it to start this because their whole background, the work they've done up until now, it aligns so well that it's just like, oh, duh, of course they they started this company. And that's not always true. There are founders who come out of left field all the time especially in consumer, but a lot of people can achieve that kind of level of founder product fit just from the amount they've ingrained themselves with their customers and how well they understand their insights. Got it. That makes a ton of sense. And so on the sourcing side, I would love to hear some of the methods that um, you found successful and any that you might find yeah, I mean, sourcing, it's interesting. I always, I, I never stop to think how exactly I do sourcing. I do a lot of cold outreach for companies that I've heard about. I have kind of a running note of all the companies someone's mentioned to me that I should check out. Some of those, I just write them down and I come back to it a week later. Others, I immediately look it up and get excited about it and go ahead and email them right then and there. And the folks that are telling me about these companies, I mean, sometimes it's other investors who are earlier in the funnel or who also look in similar spaces to me. Sometimes it's another founder I've met with and they tell me about an interesting company. I feel like as an investor, people are just telling you about companies all the time. And so because of that, it's it's for me a lot of being told about a company and then kind of cold reaching out to email them. And then only trying to use the warm intros if I really am having trouble getting in touch with someone, which definitely happens uh, sometimes. And so that's kind of the primary way I source. I mean, in addition to that, I am a generalist, but I do have a couple of sectors that I focus on more than others. So consumer, ed tech, fintech are areas that I focus on a lot. And for those, just doing a lot of research into this space You'll be reading articles, you'll be covering, watching your, your favorite person in the space speak about something or listening to a podcast. And then it's kind of just from research that I, I've heard about companies and will reach out. I, I know that you're typically investing at Series A, but do you ever talk to companies that are considerably earlier just to maybe get a pulse on how they're doing or meeting the team so that you're ready when they do reach that Series A stage? All the time. Yeah. I mean, I actually spend most of my time talking to founders who are earlier than their Series A because I'd like to get to know someone over the years. I don't want to have a shotgun wedding all of a sudden when they're raising and need the money in one week. And um, that does happen. (laughs) We can make it happen. But it's really nice to get to know someone. So yeah, I, I spend the vast majority of my time talking to earlier stage founders. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's also really helpful for those that are listening as well, just as they begin their investor outreach. And so second to last question here, how has your time as an entrepreneur really affected the lens that you look at companies through as an investor? Yeah, I started a small 
kind of consulting company that was not a venture backed company. So I think my time as a entrepreneur or a small business owner was very different than a lot of the founders that I'm speaking with day to day. There's a lot of similar problems around the zero to one start. How do you just get customers? How do you get set up? How do you get all of the paperwork and accounting and everything you need to get done done? How do you recruit team members? All of that. That was all largely the same, but I didn't go out and raise money. So I think that is a pretty substantial difference. So can't sympathize with them from that standpoint, but from some of the other elements, definitely have have shared the 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 pain with them on just how much time and effort it takes to go when there's literally no one around you and you're the only person working on it. So definitely share their their struggle there. And I think that my time at General Assembly and the VR startup I joined, those were small seed stage series A venture backed companies when I joined with the VR company had about seven people. General Assembly had something like 20, 30 people, but only three of us were working on education. So I have had a little bit of that kind of ground floor experience of, oh shoot, how do we build something that's doing a few hundred thousand or zero in revenue into uh, millions and millions and hundreds of millions and have done that. So that experience, I definitely can (laughs) sympathize with the founders as well. And so last question here, do you have any advice for founders who are early along in their journey? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think for founders who are early on in your journey, there's a couple of things that I think are really, really good to try and just practice and get really good at early. One of them is storytelling. Storytelling is so important in being able to raise money and not just raise money, but enable an ability to get sales and clients and your ability to convince people to join your team when you can't pay them as much and you don't have as fancy of offices and everything else. Your ability to storytell is crucial. And this is something I'm still trying to improve at, but boy, I see founders come through our door that are so good at it. And they always have a very personal touch and unique way that everyone does it. But figuring out how to get get good at storytelling is so key. Um, so that's the first. The second thing I would say is really building up your muscle of how to quickly absorb new n- knowledge how to build up essentially your learning muscle as a founder. I have spoken to tons and tons of founders about how they learn to do what they do. And one of the most important resources they cite is having a peer group of founders and surrounding themselves with people who are 12 to 18 months ahead of them. And it doesn't have to be the exact same industry or category, but getting those folks in a circle, connecting with them regularly, and maybe not just having one of them, having like three, four of them. So really kind of surrounding yourself with not just investors and advisors, but people you can be really real with and ask kind of the most mundane questions. So surrounding yourself with that support system is crucial. And then the third thing I would say that is really great for founders to think about is navigating this thing I call the vulnerability or to confidence trade-off. There are a lot of founders who've told me 
it's they, there's a lot of times where they want to be extremely honest and open with investors, but or advisors or someone who's high up in the terms of the I guess ability to impact the fundraising of their company. And at the same time, you want to learn from that person, but you also want to show yourself to be really confident. And if somebody asks you a question you don't know, you want to learn and admit you don't know it, but you also are trying to secure the bag. So you need to go ahead and show show you're strong. It's, I think it's a real skill to be able to quickly flip between assuredness and vulnerability. And that's something that is only comes through practice. So I encourage every founder to really work on that. So kind of the, those would be my three points. Amazing. Thank you, Mercedes, so much for all the insight you've shared uh, across a number of different topics. Uh, we really appreciated having you and, and look forward to talking more in the future. Thank you guys for having me. This was really fun. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Be Atento. Uh, you can subscribe to the Be Atento podcast anywhere where podcasts are distributed. Um, please follow us on all social media. Uh, we are at Atento Capital. Uh, and, and be sure to visit us on our website as well uh, at AtentoCapital.com. Uh, we want to give a special thanks and a huge shout out to Rant9 Productions uh, for helping us out once again uh, on another episode. And we look forward to you guys tuning in next episode.